This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. That in the birth of a child, there is a new dawn with endless potential. It is this simplicity of the Christmas story that makes it so universally appealing. Simple happenings that form the starting point of the life of Jesus, a man whose teachings have been handed down from generation to generation and have been the bedrock of my faith. His birth marked a new beginning. As the carol says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I wish you all a very happy Christmas. That's an excerpt from Queen Elizabeth II's final Christmas message. Her faith was prominent throughout her long reign. It began with religious ceremony. On Monday, they will lay her to rest in a profoundly religious ceremony. So why is it that much of the media coverage, at least here in the U.S., are not talking very much about the religious faith of Queen Elizabeth II? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. Why do you think the coverage of Elizabeth's faith and retrospectively large role that it played in her life and in her reign, why such sparse coverage of that aspect of this woman? Well, I think the first thing you have to ask is whether you're talking about the American coverage or the British coverage. They're two completely different things right now, even with the kind of infamy of the British tabloids. And I have to admit, I'm not paying a lot of attention to the British tabloids right now. I'm watching the mainstream British press, and primarily I'm watching British Broadcasting Corporation, BBC, and I'm watching Sky News. And then I haven't been able to get myself to watch more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time of any of the American television coverage. And it seems that they are two universes apart. And if you watch American television, and I don't want to sound too sarcastic about this because I'm sure I'm blowing things up, you know, in my own imagination, but it's it's really more about the death of a very beloved celebrity whose family can be thought of as kind of the Cardassians with more jewels. And the politics of what brother is speaking to the other brother or whatever. If you watch the British coverage, it's really more about the Queen and the nation's relationship to the Queen. And then they'll pull aside and talk about the family, and of course they'll talk a lot now about the new king. You know, they'll talk about him a lot. But when they talk about the Queen, they're trying to capture why she meant so much to her country. And when you say that, it tends to kind of divide Britain up by generations, and there's been a very heavy emphasis on her own history, World War II, 
the situation that brought her to the throne so young, her remarkable pledge of service with God's help, you know, when she turned 21, and she never would have dreamed that she was going to be queen in four or five years after that. But when you talk about the personality of this woman, if that's your dominant angle, and the nation's relationship to her and why she was so respected, there's more room in that second approach to her for her faith. And there's more room to talk about the fact that it was something that was very crucial to her. I can imagine that BBC had lots and lots of material prepared in advance that they could drop a few things into. I mean, the the woman was in her mid to heading toward her late 90s. Everyone has been thinking about London Bridge has fallen, the code language for her death. Everyone's been thinking about that and writing about that. I think I saw the first huge, very impressive story on that subject more than a decade ago and talking about the impact her death would have on the nation. But BBC had like a five to eight minute version of her life that it had prepared. In other words, something that it was prepared to drop into the coverage at crucial times. And toward the end of this remarkable overview of her life, you know, from her childhood, she had a very normal childhood in many ways because her father was not supposed to become king and wasn't placed on the throne until his brother shocked the world by abdicating as king. So she wasn't raised thinking she was going to be queen. Then all of a sudden at 10 years of age, boom, she's the heir to the throne. And then her father dies young of cancer, which caused heart failure. So you have all of that. And at the end, when they're summing up her life, they put it into one like paragraph summary and included that was guided by her sense of duty and by her strong Christian faith, which she talked openly throughout her, you know, her language to that effect. And the first time I saw that, I was shocked. But then whenever they would have gaps in the coverage, they kept showing that over and over, and that language never left. And they've allowed people to talk about her faith. They've had people who were on her staff and close to her talk about her faith. They've had clergy who served her and met her and discussed theological issues with her. They've had that openly featured in the coverage. So I think the key here is whether you're talking about Queen Elizabeth, the woman and the leader, and what made her different, versus whether your coverage is essentially of somehow the drama of the royal family and we can't believe she's gone, which seems to be the American angle. Why Why the difference in the coverage there? I mean, obviously, the BBC, this is closer to home for them, but why the difference? Well, I think it's the connection to World War II, for starters. The minute you take her 70 years and you start off with this young woman, the only female member of the royals to serve actively in in the military in combat, in a uniform. And people say, well, you know, she may have fixed a few trucks. In one of the biographies that they had of her on the other day, one of those biographies 
stressed, I'd never heard what her actual job was. I knew from the movie, The Queen, and other things that she fixed trucks and knew how to, her specialty was transmissions, apparently, or axles. Well, now that didn't capture the key here. She drove ambulances during the Battle of Britain, which meant that while the bombs are falling in London, you have the heir to the throne in a uniform driving ambulances through the streets. And I think the people of Britain, that is one of the first things they think about with this woman. So the, the big theme has to be duty. But why did she feel such a strong sense of duty and service? And in the British coverage, they're, they're linking that to her faith. A while ago I was watching and they were interviewing people who are queued up, the line waiting to go in to honor her and to view the her casket sitting with her lying in state. The line now is, last I checked, it's up to three miles long. They're prepared for five miles long, waiting to come in. And they ask one woman, why does the queen matter so much to you? And you hear a lot of people saying, she was a beautiful woman, we loved her, she was the only queen I ever knew. And this woman said, when I think of this queen, I'll always think of three words, faith, hope, and love. And the person standing there with the microphone let her talk about that for a while. So I think it's a seriousness about what made her different and what made her so important to the generations that came out of World War II. I think that's the note that's allowing the door to open for discussions of her faith that we're just not getting in the, in the American television coverage. Monday is her funeral. Yeah. And I, I, I'm anxious to see how the TV networks in the United States managed to cover that and avoid the subject of her faith. Well, I mean, it will be a big dramatic service. I'm expecting a lot of conversation about what the royal members of the royal family are wearing and who sits who and who looks at who during the service and whatever. I assume that the sermon will be preached by the Archbishop of Canterbury. I don't know. There's a lot of things interesting about her funeral, what little we know about it at this time, because, believe it or not, they started work on her funeral in the late 1960s. And it came really to a head with her taking a, a major role in planning her own funeral in about 2018 or so. And we have, we have the fact that she played a very major role in the planning of her service, just as Prince Philip played a huge role in the planning of his funeral. So we heard a lot of attention in the scriptures and in the hymns. In the column that I wrote about his funeral, I mentioned that there was a heavy emphasis on the military, the naval hymns, there were a lot of liturgical choices having to do with eternal life, hope, and the beauty of God's creation, because the environment was a very big deal to Prince Philip, and that's kind of where Prince Charles picked up a lot of that theme in his own life. And then, because of my own interest, and I admit my own prejudices, I was fascinated by how the funeral would deal with the fact that this man was raised Eastern Orthodox. And on a number of occasions, 
said things like, I became Anglican, you know, when I married the queen, but I never stopped being Orthodox. Little things like the fact that he would make the sign of the cross in the Orthodox fashion instead of in the Western fashion, you know, depending on which direction you're going with the hand motion of making the cross. He ended also with the primary hymn from an Orthodox funeral. The Kentuckian for the Departed was the last thing in his service. And that was very intentional. I'm going to be interested to see what the hymn choices are in this service. The settings of the funeral rite itself are very traditional. I think it will be interesting to see how much attention is paid to Charles's unique religious background. There's a lot of speculation eventually when we get to his coronation. There's been talk about whether he will take a pledge to be the defender of the faith, which is the traditional vow, and him that's referring to his role in the Church of England. Some have said he will ask that that be changed to defender of faith, period, without the article the. I think it will be interesting to see that. At some point, I wonder if people are going to focus on the fact that late in life, apparently after a lot of conversations with Prince Philip, he began exploring orthodoxy. He, he has been frequently to the Holy Mountain, the famous peninsula in Greece that is the center of orthodox spirituality for the world. And apparently one of the primary elders of the Holy Mountain comes to England once a year for a lengthy private meeting with now King Charles III. Will that continue? And what's the... They don't talk about that meeting. Is, is he literally hearing his confession? What is going on there? But primarily, they're not going to be able to avoid the actual content of the service. And frankly, I hope they ask questions about like what edition of the prayer book she chose, what prayer choices she made. I've noticed so far in the memorial services that the language has been quite traditional. You're not hearing any sort of inclusive gender language being used. It's going to be interesting to see if people dig into the contents of the service itself, because there will be a lot there to discuss. So any bright spots in terms of religion be coverage of the Queen's passing for you? Well, I've written two pieces about it so far. And in the first one, sometimes when you're dealing with such an incredible mass of material coming at you all at once, there's no way you can read it all. There's no way you can watch it all. So one of the things, having been you spent most of my time as a journalist in the computer era, and most of it, frankly, now in the Internet era, I come up with ways, after I've read some of the coverage, I come up with Google News searches. And in that very first piece I wrote, I noted that if you search for Queen Elizabeth and then you put the word Christmas in quote marks, you get all kinds of stories, and they all mention the Christmas addresses. But when you open those stories up in the mainstream press, there's really no content from the Christmas messages. It's all about the role they played in British life, and they helped her bond with her people, and it talks about the pictures of her family on the desk 
and whatever. So I then did a second search. And in this search, I would search for Queen Elizabeth, and then I would use the word just simply Christian. And I would put the word Christian in quotes so that it had to be in the results. And the minute you do that in Google News, boom, you are taken completely to the world of religious publications. And you will find almost nothing in the mainstream press that identifies her with the word Christian. You'll find Anglican more than you'll find Christian, which I think is fascinating because of the, the famous materials related to her friendship with Billy Graham and her statements that her goal in life was simply to be a simple Christian. Now, I was really harsh on the Washington Post in that they did an early collection of kind of her greatest hits from a lot of her speeches and addresses, and they had an entire section on the Christmas messages and then had absolutely nothing about the content. Well, they came back with a piece written by Sarah Pulliam Bailey, the religion writer, who did a very fine, deep dive on the faith of Queen Elizabeth, but in particular, they focused on her relationship with Billy Graham. I guess that's natural when the reporter is a graduate of Wheaton College, Billy Graham's alma mater. But it was a very well-researched piece. She talked to Franklin Graham. They talked about the fact that nobody really knows what they discussed in their private meetings or in their private correspondence, which went on for years. And Graham spoke in her private chapel numerous times during her life. And it was obvious that there was some sort of personal friendship or relationship of some kind between the two of them. And Sarah Pulliam Bailey, in what I think would call informed speculation, notes that she began talking for the rest of her life after those early meetings with Graham when she had several things going on in her life, including the, the shocking revelations that the previous king, the brother of her father, actually had had relation, had ties to the Nazi party and had more of a relationship with Germany and may have even corresponded with the Hitler regime. And in the Netflix series, The Crown, they depict this scene between her and Graham, and she asks Graham if it's essential do Christians have to forgive everyone? And they get into a discussion, and, and Graham says, simply stated, if you can't forgive someone, at the very least, you must pray for them. And Sarah Pulliam Bailey notes that if you kind of trace her language of faith, in the era right after that, she begins to talk over and over and over in the Christmas messages and elsewhere that the essence of the Christian faith is forgiveness and the ability to forgive other people. And she links that to tolerance and to grace and a lot of other things. But the word forgiveness becomes a big thing. So I would ask everyone to look at my second piece that I wrote at Get Religion, which kind of picks up the big theme, which is that the British TV stations are doing way better, networks are doing way better on that side of the ocean than American telly, so to speak. And then it praises that Washington Post piece. I think that's an exceptional one. And there have been some essays. 
run by the mainstream press. But to me, what matters is what makes it into the news coverage itself. So, Terry, she regularly, at least once a year, of course, when Christmas rolls around, had something to say to her nation about the celebration of Christmas, never omitting the narrative of the Christ child's birth. Are you seeing that any place? Well, frankly, no. Once again, you've seen a, a lot of references in Christian media, but you're not seeing the content of those addresses detailed in any way. And, and if you are, it might be that she mentioned like a Christmas hymn or something like that. I am really struck by the, the strong religious language. I wrote my column this week for the Universal Press Syndicate on her faith and on some of the only chances we've had to really look at it in depth. And I focused on some aspects of her coronation, and we can come back to that because it, it apparently she chose Westminster Abbey as the site of her funeral, even though that's the first royal funeral to be held in Westminster Abbey since 1760. It's usually held in a smaller venue in one of the chapels of the, of the castles themselves. And this is also Britain's first state funeral since Winston Churchill in 1965, the full pomp and circumstance of a state funeral. But, for example, in her very first Christmas message, which was on television, and apparently a lot of Brits bought their first television set in order to watch her coronation when she was 27, I believe, at the time she was crowned. In her very first address, get, get a load of this language. She was talking about change and modernity and the fact that she was glad to be able to, to see her people face-to-face -face on television. And then she just she observes kind of an editorial comment that new inventions like television are rarely what cause life to go wrong. And listen to this quote. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. They would have religion thrown aside, morality and personal and public life made meaningless, honesty counted as foolishness, and self-interest set up in the place of self-restraint." Now, try to imagine a major figure in world life saying words like that today. That's a really, really strong comment. Of all the things she said in a Christmas address, the one that I paid the most attention to is the message from 2011. And she's talking, as she often did, about the trials that come to people in life and the difficulty of life. And she says that Jesus was born into a world full of fear. And she talks about the shepherds and the message of the angels, fear not. And then there's this, this remarkable two sentences. And on Twitter... A lot of Christian commentators have pointed to these two sentences as the summation of her faith in life more than any other I've heard quoted. And here they are, and this is a direct quote from 2011. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness and our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior, 
with the power to forgive. And that quote and the whole context of the end of that 2011 address, I would urge listeners to look that one up. And you played a a clip from her final Christmas message, which, of course, she didn't know would be her final. But she was thinking a lot about death and loss and grief because she had just suffered the loss of her husband. And that one's really strong when she she talks about the fact that even in the midst of grief, she says, though, even with one familiar laugh missing this year, she says there will be joy in Christmas because joy is produced by new birth and children. And she said, and of course, the most important birth of a child being the birth of Christ. And then the quote that y'all used about her saying, that's been the foundation of my life and my faith. So yeah, the Christmas messages are there. They're very important. You have to look at them. But quite frankly, there are so many moments in her life, her coronation leaps to mind, in which faith and the language of faith is so important that I just I don't know how they're going to avoid it if they cover her funeral. Well, you came across a C.S. Lewis quote that yes. would be fantastic for any reporter to use because it's ready-made for that kind of retrospective on her early rise to the throne. What did Lewis have to say on viewing her coronation? You know, I had not seen that quote ever until it showed up on Twitter in the hours after her death. And it was in a letter that he wrote to a friend in America, to a poet in America. And Lewis did not get out for the coronation because, first of all, he hated crowds. And it was also the weather was terrible. It rained like crazy. And apparently, we're not sure whether just his brother Warney watched the coronation completely or whether they both did. I personally think, based on this language, that they both did. The quote from Lewis is interesting. He said, over here, and when he says over here, of course, he means on our side of the Atlantic. Over here, people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of what was going on. So I opened with my column this week with a quotation from a moment which hardly anybody ever looks at, which is before she's given all the symbols of her office and is crowned and giving the rod of office and the the royal orb and the sword and all this other stuff, There's actually the ancient ritual, common both East and West, for the anointing of someone, for God's blessing to be upon them, and an anointing that eventually, quote, you may at last be made a partaker of an eternal kingdom. So even there at that young age, there is in this service a hint of, we're praying for you for your whole life, and we're already praying for you when it comes time for you to die. And I was struck by that. To go on with the Lewis quote, people watching, there was a feeling one hardly knows how to describe it, he said, of awe, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. And, you know, he goes on for a few more sentences. But, I mean, it's hard to pass up a chance to quote C.S. Lewis because he had such an astonishing gift for summing up 
big images in very few words. So that meant a lot to me. And I would, if there are reporters out there who ever hear this or read the post I'll write about it, I would urge them to go back and look up the text of her coronation and read some of the things she said and also note that she was given a lengthy period of time in silence to kneel at the altar and just make her own prayers before the ritual began. And her coronation occurred in Westminster Abbey. She was married in Westminster Abbey, and now her funeral, by her choice, will be in Westminster Abbey. So I'm thinking that in her mind, those are the three big events of her life, and that's where this is where they belong. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow with the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at GetReligion.org.